Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. So to me, it's really maybe about high standards and aligning around those standards. Avoiding those conversations is the problem. And this is where I think, you know, the whole realm of emotions and emotional intelligence and self-awareness comes into play. Five emotionally intelligent engineers working together will produce much, much greater outcomes than people who are not really aligned, not really having those real conversations. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, we discuss compassionate accountability, accepting conflict, and facing difficulty with Mark Lesser. We talk about Mark's experience living in a Zen monastery for 10 years and the leadership lessons he learned working in their kitchen, strategies for conversations around high standards, accountability, agreements, and alignment. And we also talk about correcting negative self-talk and closing the gap between combative standards like speed versus quality. And these are things that I know that we all deal with and how to move from avoiding conflict to accepting conflict. Let me tell you a little bit about Mark. Mark is a CEO, executive coach, and Zen teacher. He founded and was CEO of three companies and helped develop a mindfulness program inside Google's headquarters. He was a resident of the San Francisco Zen Center for 10 years and director of Tassajara Zen Mountain Center, the first Zen monastery in the Western world. He's also the author of Finding Clarity. At the end of the episode, Mark leads us through a short three-minute meditation, so I wanted to extend an invitation to you to join us and follow along with the meditation. Take a minute for yourself to find some space and much-needed well-being, because that's ultimately what this episode's all about. Enjoy our conversation and brief meditation with Mark Lesser. I guess to kick off our conversation, Mark, Jerry and I first off just wanted to say welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, how are you? How is your Friday? I'm good. I was looking forward to this conversation. It's funny that I know in part I'm in part I'm here to talk about my newest book which is technically hasn't even come out yet. It comes out April 11th, Finding Clarity, and I feel a bit ridiculous in that on my list of things to do today is writing about the next book. And of course, you know, people say, hear that and say, no, you have to focus on it. Yeah, I'm completely focused on this book. I get it. I'm not varying. I'm not getting distracted. And yet I'm doing this other thing. It's I seem to really enjoy creating stuff. Well, I think speaking on behalf of Jerry as well, I think both of us really relate and understand the compulsion to create. So even in the moment of a big launch or in the middle of a big event, we're already thinking about the compulsion to create the, the next moment or experience for folks. Um, so totally relate to that. And I have to ask myself, you know, I, I think uh, it wouldn't be particularly effective or useful to have an attitude of not fully being 
I, I feel fully behind this book. I'm not hedging my bets in any way here. And yet, you know, it's interesting. I think we humans are amazing. We can be fully in one place and then fully in another place when, if, we, if we need to be. You had me in that moment. I was 10 years old again. Absolutely. Well, Mark, I know that we wanted to talk about the, the world in which we wanted to live in today was uh, about well-being and creating healthy workplaces, families, and relationships. And it's a little bit of a different topic because I'd say a lot of the things that we focus on are leadership and career and how people can do their jobs better. And in a lot of ways, this topic is, it's almost a little more comprehensive and holistic. And we're touching on more of the relational elements of, of things. And to begin in a, a little bit of a different way, we'd love to start off with an extraordinary story that, that you have. And you've lived and worked in a Zen monastery for 10 years, um, would love to just learn what was that like? Can you tell us about that story and your experience there? I just wanted to say, though, responding to the statement you made, and it's interesting, it's similar, I think, to what I was suggesting right before that, which is that, yes, I think the topic here is leadership. The topic here is how to be a better leader, how to be a more effective leader. And in order to do that, I think we also need to be fully in on our relationships and our self-awareness. So yeah, I think we can uh, make sure that we're hitting on all those areas. In answer to your question, I lived at the San Francisco Zen Center for 10 years. I spent basically all of my 20s there. And a large part of that was living in a Zen monastery. I loved it. In some way, for me, it was a combination of just like I love sports, I love the sport of meditation. Meditation is a great sport. It's very physical. Just sit and see what happens. It has a lot in common, I think, with golf or basketball or baseball. It is very physical and at the same time, a very mental. No avoiding either. It's a great sport, meditation. And in a monastery, it's a very serious sport. Spend many hours sitting and it is a group sport. I could never sit for many hours a day by myself. It takes the support of others and this the feeling that emerges in a, in a room when you're sitting with a lot of other people and where the, the spirit of it is that it's definitely a team sport, right? You're sitting in part to be there. Your presence helps support other people. So the, yes, I loved the discipline. I loved the community aspect to it. I loved how it was all very aspirational, right? We were there to see if we could experiment and explore being free from ego, being free from our habit energy, being free from our limitations through getting in touch with our habits, our ego and, limit and limitations, the tumbler of living and working with other people. And work, work was a really big part of my experience of living in the Zen monastery. And I kept getting asked to work in the kitchens. You know, I was the dishwasher, I worked on a kitchen crew. I was a bread baker for a, a year and totally fell in love with baking bread. I got to be the assistant to the head cook, which was like being an operations manager. Like, you know, this was a serious kitchen. This was a kitchen that in the winter, there may be eight people. In the summertime, there were 15 or 20 people in this kitchen. And we were making gourmet vegetarian meals for 70 or 80 overnight guests. But there was something about how much I feel like I learned and grew about leadership and working with others by my years of working in that kitchen and loving work and loving the pressure 
you know, I felt like uh, being in that kitchen was a lot like being Steph Curry on the basketball court and having to make those three-point shots. Like we, we had to produce great meals every time and you went for it and you let it go. You went for it and you let it go and you kept working hard to make it better and better. We were there ultimately to develop character, I would say. And I would say Steph Curry is actually, I think he's ultimately on that basketball court to develop his own character. What was your favorite meal to prepare for others in the kitchen environment? <laughs> oh, um, a really unusual meal that we made. It was called nut loaf. It was like a really kind of a vegetarian meatloaf. It was a lot of ground nuts. Back then, it had a variety of cheeses in it. And we made this really great kind of a miso nutritional yeast sauce that went over it. Yeah, that was a fancy dinner. But I used to love making pizzas, making lasagnas, potato pancakes. One of the traditions in this Zen monastery was that lunch was always bread or grain and soup and salad. I I really like white bean and kale soup Mm. was a favorite soup. Uh, To this day, I still like making white bean and kale soup. Jerry and I both find a lot of joy preparing elaborate meals for our family and friends and people that we entertain. So you know, hearing this, like it's to me, it's transporting me to some of my, my happiest memories and places. Yeah. These days I do uh, meditation retreats in my home and it will always include lunch that I'll make. And I tell people this meditation retreat is really an excuse. I get you over here and cook for you, <laughs> make, you make you all lunch. The follow-up question I want to ask you really quickly was you'd mentioned like exploring your habit energy and, and limitations. I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit more about what that was and what that exploration was like? Well, it's fascinating, you know, especially now that a big part of my current book, Finding Clarity, is about accountability and about not avoiding conflict. And I think I discovered a lot in those days as a young man in that Zen kitchen, what a hard time I had with conflict and how unskillful I was. And I think that was the beginning of the experience about avoiding conflict is trouble. And especially when you're running a kitchen, finding that sweet spot of having really, really high standards and being really, really hard on the problems, but being caring, trusting, loving with the people. And this, I think, is still one of the biggest challenges that I have and I think anyone in a leadership role has, right? High standards, really, really high standards and taking care of people, being able to see from multiple perspectives. And this is where I think the body practice of meditation and mindfulness, you need to be able to develop a body that is trustworthy, that is not signaling denial or attack, you know, uh, attacking and denying are the natural ways that people will try to enforce high standards. So how do you have high standards without any sense of attacking or denying, but instead empowering and working toward a greater alignment, alignment with others? This to me is the beauty of um, accountability and why I throw in that it's compassionate accountability as this practice, this really important practice. I think it's fascinating to hear how you, as a leader, how do you keep a very high standard without being felt as you know, you're attacking or denying things. Personally, as a engineering leader in a panel, as a leader myself, how to balance that you have a high standard, but also how to implement that and message that to, to the rest of the team, uh, you know, whether it's empowering. So I think that's really core scale for any leader. 
So totally. I can resist to poke a little deeper and want to see whether you have any, any examples in the kitchen that can translate to conversation around high standard or leadership. I think of a very simple example, and there's many, many ways that we could, you know, we could spend all day talking about this. It's a great and rich topic. But what came up for me was the importance of coaching and mentoring, for example. I'm in the kitchen and I look over and I see someone cutting onions. And I notice that there are ways to cut onions that are much, much more effective than what they're doing. And I go over and say, are you open to finding out a different way, a more, a more effective way to cut onions? And then demonstrate and be there and be there. You know, so it's not like, man, you're such an idiot. Look how you're cutting those onions or whatever, you know, whatever ways uh, one could react. So it's, yeah, I mean, this is a very easy example. There's maybe a whole chain of more difficult examples, right? So a meal comes out of the oven and it's not quite up to your standards. Then how do you work with that? But I think part of that is mentoring, coaching, training, having clear agreements about both, I think, what success looks like, what our standards are, as well as how we're working together and the agreements around care, trust, vulnerability, and the beauty and opportunity of great leadership. I recently led a retreat for wildland firefighters. Now I'm upping the stakes a lot, right? So these are people that work in life and death situations. And this one leader you know, admitted that when there were emergency situations, he turned into a total jerk and he didn't like himself. But he had a firm belief that he needed to be a jerk in those life and death situations. And we had to do some processing around, hey, you need to experiment. You'll clearly feel better, but I think you'll have a better outcome by being more caring, inclusive. It doesn't mean that you're not decisive and direct. And So how do you have those super high standards, make those in the moment decisions. Sometimes, you know, I, I was telling someone that when I'm in the kitchen, you put me in my kitchen with a knife in my hands and there's people that I'm working with, people are often surprised by how directive I can be. I can be really bossy in my kitchen in a way that people don't maybe see me in other areas. And sometimes I'll have to kind of check myself and say, if I'm being too bossy here, just let me know. And often it's like, no, like I appreciate, you know, you sharing with me how to do these different things in kitchen or sometimes like, no, yeah, yeah. why don't you step back and let me, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you if I need something. So that continuum of giving people space, coaching and mentoring, and then being directive and setting, you know, setting high standards. All of that, I think, is the juicy area of great leadership and the, again, the opportunities and challenges of being a leader. So much of, of what you shared about those accountability conversations, it's very easy to fall into the trap of attacking and denying when you're trying to enforce high standards. I'd love to dive in a little bit more into this topic of compassionate accountability, because I think for a lot of folks in our community, there is this desire to want to have high standards, to take pride in producing a, a beautiful, high quality piece of technology that has impact on, on the people. But a lot of times the challenges that come up are in the navigating of when either that expectation or that outcome doesn't meet that standard. So tell us more about compassion and accountability and, and how do you have some of those accountability conversations with different types of people? One of the subchapters in my book is called The Four Most Important Words, which are how are we doing? So much of accountability, and I understand accountability has a really bad 
reputation. It sounds harsh or a lack of accountability, I think would be the words most associated with that word. So to me, it's really maybe about high standards and alignment high standards and aligning around those standards and aligning around and driving toward alignment and what success looks like, which means being able to course in that terrain of when we're not aligned, you know, to noticing we can be not aligned, but we could still be driving after the same goals or having some clear sense of what it is we're trying to achieve. Avoiding those conversations is the problem. And this is where I think the whole realm of emotions and emotional intelligence and self-awareness comes into play and where emotions and emotional intelligence are not the soft stuff. It's the hard stuff. It's the hard stuff. And it is, I think, not indirectly, it's directly connected to effectiveness and great outcomes and creating products that are great. Five emotionally intelligent engineers working together will produce much, much greater outcomes than people who are not really aligned, not really having those real conversations, not naming discord and aiming for more accountability and alignment. I love what you shared about emotions are directly connected to great outcomes, because I think that can be easily just a misconception that people have and that it's more of seen as a second or third degree effect and that people then can, can leave those aside. I thought that was really powerful. There's a great clip of Daniel Goleman talking about emotions and decision making and some science, some research that shows that all of our decisions, you know, small, medium and large decisions are valenced through our emotional lives, right? He actually describes someone who had an operation whose cognitive centers were by accident snipped from his emotional centers and that everything about this person seemed quite normal except for he couldn't make a decision. When Daniel Goleman asked him, well, when should we meet next? He could weigh all of the pros and cons about when we should meet next, but couldn't decide. And it was like some evidence about the relationship of our emotions and our emotional centers and decision making, right? So we're constantly, as a leader in the work world, we're having to make decisions. So we were talking about compassion and accountability and this big question of what happens when we're not aligned and how do we engage in these conversations about high standards and alignment? Mark, can you share us maybe some practices that can help us develop greater understanding or alignment with others, even if there is maybe a disagreement on the path forward? In a way, there's like maybe three different big buckets here. There's the individual, there's the relationship, and then there's maybe the organizational or the culture that you're creating. And I think all three of these buckets come into play here, but it's it does start with the individual. Can you notice when you are attacking or avoiding, right? Or blaming, you know, we humans, we're very, very sensitive, vulnerable creatures. Even the ones who appear the toughest and the crustiest, maybe they might be the most vulnerable. We've evolved in a way, I think, to go anytime we feel threatened, we go right to blame. We go right to blame or avoidance, right? That fight or flight is so potent in us. And it's playing out in so many ways in the work world, in our relationships, in meetings and in conversations. So it starts with training ourselves to bring a lot more awareness to our own fight and flight responses and habits and to be able to calm them and to bring more awareness and notice when we're doing it. That's the starting point. And par again, part of this is, this is not just cognitive. This is also having a body that is not overreacting by defending or attacking fight or flight. And then there's developing the skills, 
that are needed to be able to have effective, open, healthy relationships. The mentoring and coaching skills, those are big. The skills required to create more psychological safety in your relationships. The skills to be able to have difficult conversations, you know, to be able to parse content from feelings, from identity. I'm often recommending a great book, a book called Difficult Conversations, and it goes into great detail about the art and strategy of having those difficult conversations, having a clear vision of what we are trying to accomplish. And then there's the cultural, being able to define and be effective in creating great cultures, cultures that I'm now working with organizations that have adopted this language of compassionate accountability. I think it's a great descriptor of the kind of culture that many, many leaders want to create. If compassion is too soft a word, you know, caring accountability, trusting accountability. But I think that that combination, I think, of high standards around what success looks like and creating a workplace where well-being and building inner strength and character are highly valued. When you were sharing the example of the the firefighter discovering that they don't like the person they become in those high stakes situations and that they want to they want to be different, what did it look like for that person to have more compassionate conversations in those high stakes environments where the the outcome is so critical? What what did it look like for that person to totally transform? I, it makes me think, Patrick, of executives who I work with who firmly believe it's it becomes I think an embedded belief. I have to be hard on myself and I have to be hard on others in order to get stuff Mm -hmm. done. A very relatable self-talk. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I think the key is to notice that and to experiment with, hey, for the next week or next two weeks, experiment with being kind to yourself and being kind with others. It's not about lowering standards at all. Same high standards, but try experimenting with a different kind of self-talk Try experimenting with a different kind of attitude about working with others and really notice, are you less productive? Are you less effective? Is it the same or are you more productive and effective? And again, there's been a fair amount of research around this that we are smarter. We can get more done through carrots than sticks, right? We don't need to be beating ourselves and beating others. We can actually be, you know, nice guys finish first. Nice guys but who are not avoiding conflict and are having high standards. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Can you take us through some conversations that you have seen or participated in the past? I think a lot of times new leaders in our audience are looking for perspective and actually the language. How do you navigate those conversations? This is a conversation that I have often with executives is that I think people develop that habit of that negative self-talk. It leads to bad things like stress, lack of well-being like going home and noticing that you can't turn it off and that you're treating your wife and your kids 
like you're treating your employees and it does not work so well. And you, you kind of recognize that this is not the way that you want to be in the world ultimately, but you have such a firm belief that you wouldn't be an effective leader without that. So it's, I think, often feeling the pain of how it's not working for you and then being open to experimenting and exploring with other ways of being and testing out other ways of being. I sometimes will actually use this model around difficult conversations and say, okay, let's look at what are the stories, what's, you know, actually the language of the story I'm telling myself about what's happening here is this, just that, as opposed to then you remove that kind of concretized blame. You start by taking some responsibility for, we've got a problem here. We have a problem. I'm having a problem, right? We're not meeting our financial goals or we're not our team is not working well together. Let's, we have to talk about that. Here's the story I'm telling myself. Here's how I'm feel. Here's the feelings that are coming up for me. Here's some of my identity issues around competence or incompetence. And to be able to actually be able to talk about that with the motivation of wanting to align more, wanting to build more understanding. Sometimes we just make so many assumptions about what other people's motivations are. This is a core one. A core lesson here is, you know, the distinction between impact and intention. You've probably heard that. I, I think of it as a common directive in the world of conflict resolution. So anytime someone says something or does something and I feel an ouch, I feel hurt in some way. I notice my fight or flight emotion has come up. And instead of going right to blame or thinking that I know what someone else's motivation or intention is to be curious, like, hey, something you said at the meeting, I felt hurt by that. And I'm curious, what was your intention? What was your motivation? What's What was happening for you? So this is, again, it takes real I think skill and self-awareness to be able to effectively have these difficult conversations. But I think it's a skill worth cultivating and developing for leaders and for everyone. Again, it starts with self-awareness and then it's having the tools and skills to be able to work with conflict and difficulty. I think the, the mindset of being a person conversation face a curiosity is really powerful because it's very practical. It sounds easy to adopt. Try to learn and give a chance for the other person to speak up. And there might be things that they don't know. I think that's going to be really practical and powerful. And if I may go back to the, the high standard conversation, and sometimes as a leader, I felt there's a challenge if the standard that you are saying, you are setting for the team or yourself, sometimes it not get bought in by the team. So how do you close that gap? This is a conflict that Jerry and I run into personally, is that sometimes our standards are different and we have to wrestle yeah. with it. So yeah. this is a conversation yeah. we visit all the time. <laughs> happy to work with the two of you. You know, offline, we can, we can work this out. <laughs> well, we definitely, definitely appreciate that. We're totally open sourcing our conflicts, so we, we are not afraid to do that at all. Yeah. What's an example of where you have different standards? Well, I think the first one that comes to my mind, Jerry, like to make it real would be, you know, how we navigated how we choose to edit the podcast and like the different sort of standards of quality yeah. would probably be one. I would have one perspective of action and getting an episode out is probably what I would optimize for. And then Jerry would be like wanting to make sure the episode fulfills like the standard of quality that we'd be really proud of. And so sometimes like it can appear to us that those can be intentions sometimes. For sure. No, those that's a that's a really um, so so common, right? Speed standard seems to be in conflict with quality, right? 
that's a really common one that you always have to sort of negotiate. What speed can you live with? What are the various pieces of that that make sense or don't make, that don't make sense? Some deadlines are real. Often deadlines are completely fictional getting in there and, and coming up with an agreement. I'm doing that right now with, with a lot of things. I also do a podcast. I do a newsletter. Um, I have a team of people that are scattered around the world that I work with. And these are regular, constant challenges. It starts with not avoiding the conversation and doing your best to come to some alignment and resolution. And then tracking the data about whatever measurements you have about success and how how it's working or not working to help inform the refining. It's an ongoing, I think, refinement around quality and speed. It doesn't work if Jerry says, yeah, it's going to take me a month. I need a month. No, that's not going to work. Well, how much time? What's the least amount of time you can take and get the highest quality result? And if we take an example, if going back where you saw someone in your kitchen and cutting onions, not in the right way, not in the most effective way, and you want to show them a better way. And what if that person says, well, I don't see a need to change the way I'm cutting my onions. What do you do? Well, in this case, if I give this person and say, your task is I need two gallons of onions cut in a small chop and I need these in 20 minutes. I don't, I don't care whatever method you want to use actually to produce high quality, perf- perfect, mm-hmm. they need to be perfectly cut, small cut onions. But I'm pretty sure you're going to need to use a different method than what you're using here. There are occasions when a lack of curiosity or a lack of flexibility can be a problem. And that person might not last on my team, actually, if their attitude is I'm not interested. Yeah, that's a problem that, you know, so to me, a core value is curiosity, flexibility, constant sense of improvement, wanting to do things better. You've mentioned agreements being a really important element of the the high standards and accountability conversation. What would be the best way to create an agreement? What does that agreement formation conversation look like typically? You very quite literally have to come up with an agreement about, in this case, time, time and quality. Now, the example I just gave was interesting in that as the person running the kitchen, I'm setting a standard that says, here's what onions need to look like, and here's how much time they are. I'm not negotiating that. That's an interesting one. That's a power relationship where I get to make that call. Now, that's different than you and Jerry, where you're doing this together and you neither of you can say, here's the bottom line standard. You need to work it out, ideally in a way that satisfies both of your sensibilities about quality and, and time. Yeah, so super interesting, these, uh, you know, working together. And then there's working with a team. How do you motivate and empower a team of people? Here, I think, is where meaning and purpose, people are really highly motivated, often, if you can bring in, you know, that we're working for a higher purpose here. My first company that I started was a publishing company, and uh, we made greeting cards and calendars So I therefore consider myself a professional quote collector. One of my favorite quotes is by St. Oxbury, who wrote the book, The Little Prince, who you may have heard this, where he says, if you want to train people to build ships, don't teach them about hammering nails and cutting wood. Teach them to long for the immensity of the sea. But obviously, that then needs to, that then immensity of the sea does need to translate into how you're cutting wood you know, and hammering nails. So we were in the kitchen, we were producing beautiful, 
healthy, high-quality meals for people. We were also building character in that kitchen, and that both were really, really important. One other element I wanted to to ask you about the formation of agreements or entering into some more of the the compassionate accountability or or standards related conversations is this idea of oftentimes like these dysfunctions come up from avoiding what is difficult. How can someone no longer avoid what is difficult? Like how how do you how do you I guess move from a place of avoiding what is difficult to being able to address it? Yeah. That publishing company I was referring to that I founded and ran for many years, I got fired from. And this was such a powerful example for me of because I was avoiding difficulty, I was avoiding having difficult conversations with some of my key people, some of my board members. I would say for me, avoiding difficulty comes quite naturally. It's a long-term habit. I had to train myself in my next role as a CEO of a company I made a really firm vow that I was not going to avoid difficulty. And at the end of every day, I was going to ask myself and do a little bit of journal writing. Is there any conflict or difficulty here that I need to be paying more attention to? Doesn't mean that I have to engage and act on every one of those, but there is something powerful about not avoiding difficulty and bringing attention to it and then making a decision about this is one I can let go of. But this is one, this one needs my attention. This needs a conversation. I need to act on this in some way, sometimes in a very small way, just by being curious about something. I like what I call the no festering rule, right? So there's some conflict, there's some difficulty. This conflict that you and Jerry are talking about, you could both decide to ignore it and it would probably get worse and worse. I often told my employees, don't go home and complain about me to your spouse or your family. Talk to me. I really, truly want this to be a good place to work. And I know it's hard. It's not, these are not easy. These are not easy. You know, cynicism is easy in the business world. Being cynical, having, you know, yeah, he really wants the best of us. Yeah, purpose and meaning. This is all a lot of BS. It's so easy to be cynical in the workplace that to really be sincere and have good, healthy relationships is hard. It's hard and it's ongoing work, but it's so worth it. It's so worth it, I think. The question you shared, is there a conflict or difficulty I should be paying attention to as a consistent thing to ask yourself, I think is is so powerful to at least make available the opportunities to address them, as you said, in, in small ways. I think that's really great. Mark, we have a, we have a, a few rapid fire questions. And then I know we, we planned a, something something special to close off our, our conversation together. Um, so if you're ready, we can jump in. Let's do it. What are you reading or listening to right now? Way too much. I've been reading Adam Grant, Think Again is a book I've been enjoying a lot. I've also been rereading an old book by Vietnamese Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh called Peace is Every Step. And I'm listening to, actually reading a wonderful book on U.S. history called These Truths by Jill Lepore. She's a writer, great writer. She writes, she used to write for the New Yorker, just a fantastic sweeping book about U.S. history. A podcast that I really enjoyed a lot lately was uh, there is a fellow named Roland Griffiths, who happens to be the head of psychedelic research at Johns Hopkins University. Two interviews by him. One is by Sam Harris on his podcast and also Tara Brock, who is a spiritual teacher. Also, they both interview Roland Griffiths, who is a psychedelic research, long-term meditator and amazing human being. Fantastic. Thank you. 
What's a tool or methodology that's had a big impact on you? I like the SCARF model. You're familiar with the SCARF model? I like these acronyms, uh, Status, Certainty, Autonomy, Relationship, and Fairness. And these are five leadership category skills that, right? So, um, you know, taking away status has been shown by neuroscientists to light up in the same parts of the brain as pain. So these are lever- these are levers to be aware of how to motivate or demotivate your people by being aware of these five categories, especially status. Status is super interesting one, but they all are: status, certainty, autonomy, relational, and fairness. That is a powerful tool to to just drop in the end of the conversation. <laughs> um, thank you, Mark. What's a trend that you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? I think it has hit the main. It's funny that it comes in waves. Teaching meditation as part of leadership seemed like it hit the mainstream about 10 years ago and maybe it's kind of gone quiet some. But yeah, I think every MBA program and leadership program will be emphasizing meditation and mindfulness practice, I think, as a core. You know, again, going back to this conversation we were having about fight and flight and self awareness, it takes practice. It ta- and I think it takes an ongoing body practice to really not be tossed around by these core emotions, core reactions. Absolutely. Especially when you were talking about when people perceive things as a threat, that's when they enter into fight or flight mode. And as a leader, how can you approach that conversation in a way that doesn't come off as a perceived threat to help get the best outcome or decision? I thought that was really great. So to close off our conversation, I was wondering if you could introduce us maybe to a a closing meditation or mindful practice or a reflection for for listeners. Um, Given your expertise in in this area, we thought it'd be a really special way to close off our conversation on compassionate accountability. Sure. Should we do a three-minute meditation together? That sounds... Or is that what you have in mind? That sounds great. Cool. Okay, I even have my trusty bell right here, which lives on my desk. So let's sit for three three All right. minutes. All right. So just stopping and noticing the transition from whatever you were doing hearing, thinking, to stopping. Very ordinary. This is not nothing special about pausing. And, uh, and also creating this container where nothing needs to be changed or accomplished. What if What if right now you had everything that you needed? Put your to-do lists aside, your projects, your anything that is uh, lacking, and experiment with right now. There's nothing lacking. How does that feel? Can you bear it? Can you allow it? Can you feel the relief? of nothing lacking, no need to scan for threats right now. In this moment, imagine what it would be like to be safe, completely safe. You know, like in your your mother's womb, perhaps safe, completely safe, protected, 
just try and get on. And, and also experimenting with this uh, feeling of radical belonging. What would it be like if you knew that you completely are connected to people who you love and love you and, and to life? connected to this web of life. And I, uh, I invite you to notice that you are breathing. Just for a moment, acknowledge the simple, ordinary, and sacred act of the breath life, the life in your breath, and letting thoughts come and go, and just bringing a, an approach of curiosity about the breath, about whoever you think you are, noticing it and letting it go. With each exhale, a sense, a quality of uh, emptying out, emptying out, not knowing, uh, and <laughs> emptying out and filling up with this sense of uh, warm-heartedness, warm-heartedness, warm-hearted curiosity, allowing allowing that warm-hearted curiosity to uh, fill you up as you empty out from the to-do lists and usual things we're trying to do. And keeping it simple, just breathing in, breathing out with some awareness. And let's, uh, let's just sit quietly for 30 seconds. and uh, coming back to being here with each other. Mark, thank you for a very different way to close off this conversation in a moment of stillness and for helping guide us through everything from making agreements to how to overcome avoiding some of the things that are difficult. And mm -hmm. I know I really appreciate you also guiding Jerry and I through some of our own conflict and offering... <laughs> opportunities for us to to address that more powerfully. Um, that's something we definitely appreciate. This has just been a the most wonderful way to start off a Friday morning. Okay. And so I just want to say thank you so much for your time and your stories today. Thanks. And uh, Jerry, a pleasure to meet meet you. Uh, really appreciated your your presence here. And Patrick, thank you. 
If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community, to stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on. Head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.